0: Revelation 12, we're looking at verses 1 through 17. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head... And on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished, for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. The grass withers, the flowers fade away, but the word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we look at it further tonight. Heavenly Father, we come again in Revelation to a, a scene, to a vision, which is in so many ways confusing. And so we pray that you would be with us tonight and that you would help us, that you would help us to understand And that you would not just open our minds to understand, you would open our hearts to believe. So that we might actually see and hear what you have for us. That you would show us something of ourselves in our sin. And more importantly, you would show us something of yourself in your grace and your mercy. And Father, we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, I think I mentioned, uh, I don't know, in the last uh, couple weeks or so that... As I was working on these uh, sermons this summer, uh, one of the current events that was going on was the, uh, and, and certainly still is in some regard, the um, the the police shootings of, of unarmed African Americans, and then the protests that arose from that, and, and, and all of that uh, all of that was going on, and so it was on my mind a lot, and so I was thinking about that as I was working on this text. And I thought about this, that if you were asked to explain all of that conflict, the, the racial tensions, the police shootings, if somebody asked you, why is that happening? They didn't know anything about it, and they said simply, why is that hap- happening? You know, would it be fair to say, uh, well, it's happening because of this, per- you know, the shooting happened because this person would not comply with the police officers. He wouldn't put his hands behind his back or whatever, quickly enough. Or, or the, the protest. Could, could you say it's happening because some people just distrust the police? Right, I think, I think we would have to say that, that that's, not a, that's not a fair answer. Right, that the answer to that question of why is this happening, it's very complex and that there's a whole lot more going on there than just uh, a person resisting arrest or you know, whatever the case may be. That there's a whole lot of history that, that, that's at work behind the scenes. At work, behind, at, at work in the past. And there's a whole lot of culture that's at work um, behind the scenes presently. But there's just a lot going on. And it's hard to wrap your mind around in some ways. I think, uh, I think that's a little bit like what we're getting a glimpse of here in this text. That this text is giving us sort of a uh, sort of an inside look at what's going on in this world. Now we've said that that's true of all of Revelation, right? Our, our theme every week is the unveiled truth that Revelation is a book that God has given uh, that basically pulls back the curtain of reality to show us what's really going on in this world. And here we get sort of this um, 50,000 foot view, if you will, of what's going on in the world. Um, And what we see is that, that, that there are these spiritual realities at play that are very real. And so tonight I want us to look at, I want us to see the unveiled truth of, I've called it spiritual warfare. That there are, there are real spiritual forces at work, that we're in the midst of a war. There's a cosmic war going on, even though we can't see it. God pulls back the curtain. And as we get started, let me say this just for uh, for good good measure that uh I have to say thank you to uh a a pastor friend of mine, a guy named Brian Habig, Pastor in Greenville, South Carolina. I'm uh, indebted to him for uh, his outline of this text and, and some of his thoughts. So uh, I'm I'm definitely borrowing some from him and want to put that out there and say thanks. All right, so I want to look at this in three ways, uh three three points tonight. First, we're going to look at the combatants in this war, so who's, who's in the war. Secondly, we'll look at the history of the war. And then thirdly and finally, we'll, we'll draw application, and that's where we'll spend the most of our time. We'll look at what we learn from the war. All right, so first, who are the combatants in this war, in this cosmic war? Uh, we have three, three main players here. And so first, we'll take a look. We see the woman in verse 1. Uh, A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Alright, so what in the world, who is that? What in the world is that all about? Well, like we've said, probably every week, the way that we have to understand Revelation in the New Testament um, is by understanding and going to the Old Testament. That we really don't get any new, or we don't get much new information in the New Testament. But we have these symbols and this imagery uh, that is imported from the Old Testament. And so we're going to go back. We're going to do that again. We're going to do that a few times tonight. Um, So in the Old Testament, we see the same grouping of symbols in in Genesis 37. Genesis 37 is the story, uh, if you recall, of Joseph. Remember, we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Uh, That line. And then Jacob, who's uh, later uh, renamed Israel, Uh, He has 12 sons, and one of his sons is Joseph. And Joseph begins to have some dreams. Right? He has a dream that he saw the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing down to him. And it's very clear from the text that that's his father and his mother and his brothers bowing down to him. Uh, And presumably he's the 12th star. So really... Right. This takes us back to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob, again, renamed Israel. Um, and so what seems to be at work here is that this is, this is symbolic of, of God's people. That the woman is representative of the, the collective of God's people. The family that would become Israel and become his people. Alright, so second, who do we see? Uh, in verse three, we see it. We get another sign, and it's this great dragon. And this one, we get we totally get a free pass because the text tells us who it is, which is always nice. Verse nine, it says the dragon uh, is that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He's depicted as having seven heads with ten horns and seven crowns. So these are symbols, right, that are showing that he's he is very smart. That he's very powerful. And I think it's important to say here, it's important to say that the Bible always depicts Satan as a very real being. Uh, that it's not sort of the... Um, the, uh, the it, Satan is the idea of evil. Um, he's sort of this caricature of everything bad. The Bible, even Jesus himself, talks about uh, Satan as a very real being. He's not a mythical figure. Um, and he's also not the opposite of God, right? I think sometimes we might think along those lines. You have God and you have his sort of opposite Satan, and that's certainly not true. He's still a created being. He's very powerful and real, but he's not equal to God in any way. All right, we've got the woman, we've got the dragon. Thirdly, we've got the child, verse 5. We see that the woman gives birth to a child, and he is described as, uh, verse 5, a male child, one who, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. So again, we go back to the Old Testament, and we see that that's a quote from Psalm 2. Second Psalm, which is uh, very clearly a messianic psalm. It means it's about Jesus. And yes, they're all about Jesus. But the New Testament, in, uh, in, in a few places, picks up Psalm 2 and very clearly connects Psalm 2 to Jesus himself. And so we get uh, very clearly that this child is Jesus Christ. So we've got the people of God, we've got uh, Satan, and we've got Jesus, the Messiah. So those are the combatants. Let's look at the history, second point, the history of the war. Um, and really, what I, one thing that's important to see is that we actually get the same story played out twice. And... Because this could be confusing. If you try to read, uh, what is it, verses 1 through 17 as one continual story, it's going to be really hard to figure out. And like we said last week, Revelation is, um, it often gives us the same thing from a different angle. And that's what's happening. Verse 1 through 6, we get, we get this, uh, the, the story. And then verses 7 through 17, we get it again from a, from a slightly different angle with some more detail. All right, so what's the story? Well, first we need to go back a little bit uh, and sort of bring in a little backstory that's that's inferred. Right again, the dragon is the devil, that ancient serpent, and so that takes us all the way back to Genesis three. Um, and so, in, in Genesis three, you remember what happens? Uh, Satan comes to Adam and Eve and tempts them uh, to to disobey God, and they of course fall into that temptation. And then God comes and he and he passes down judgment. To uh, to Adam and Eve and to the serpent, and do you remember what he says? Uh, the first judgment is to Satan, and this is what he says: he "says God says I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." All right. So do you see what you know? We studied Genesis uh, what last last fall. If you remember. You see what that's saying? that God basically comes into that situation and, and says, "You have allied yourself with the devil you 've chosen sides and, and you've you 've chosen to team up with the devil, and so i 'm going to come and'm to i 'm going to put a division in between you i 'm going to make you enemies for your good'm not going to allow you." To ally with him. Uh, And he says essentially to the woman, the seed of the woman, um, he's going to come and crush your head, and your seed, the seed of the serpent, is going to uh, strike at his heel. So basically, the rest of history is going to be played out between uh, essentially those that are of of God's people and those that are the seed of the woman and those that are uh, the seed of the serpent. Those people right that do not believe in god and and there 's going to be this tension that 's going to that 's going to exist, and ultimately it 's obviously a pointer to Jesus and his ultimate defeat of the of the serpent but that that reality in Genesis three is what we 're getting a picture of here in this text, this sort of great war of the seed of the serpent of the devil of Satan going after god 's people and trying to trying to stamp them out. That's what we see here. Verses 4 through 6, you see the devil waiting for the woman to deliver her child. Waiting for this uh, hero, right, for Jesus to be born. But the child's caught up to God and the woman flees into the wilderness. So what's that all about? Um, Jesus being caught up to God points to Jesus' ascension when he was taken up into heaven. and and sort of involved in that implicitly it basically points to everything that Jesus' career I guess you could say everything that Christ did his life, his death, his resurrection so that's basically the the story and then uh, from 7 verse 7 on we get it we get it again it rewinds the tape and we get the same account or we get an account of the same thing from a slightly different angle um what do we see? Uh, oh, right. Because of Jesus' career, everything that Jesus accomplishes, we see that Satan is thrown down from heaven. Uh, where to he go? Verses 10 and 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them night and day, day and night rather, before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. So Satan gets thrown down, and because he couldn't get the seed of the serpent, I mean of the woman, sorry, it's a big distinction, because he, couldn't get, uh, because he couldn't get Jesus, he gets thrown down and now he is furious, because the text says he knows his time is short, and now he takes everything out, he puts his targets directly on the people of God, he turns his attention to them. And so we get the, the woman, God's, God's people, uh, in the wilderness, right? Satan is after them, and they're in the wilderness. She's in the wilderness, protected and nourished by God for 1,260 days. So that's the history, right? That's what plays out. So now let's try to draw some, uh, some application. And I get that that's a lot, right? Just to kind of throw out there. Uh, so I hope you're still with me. Let's try to draw some application for that. What does it mean for us? Um, A handful of, uh, yeah, we've got a handful of applications. Number one, it means this. It means that if you're a believer, you are in the midst of a war. You are in the midst of a war. And now that might seem obvious, but I think we need to stop and recognize that. Uh, There are a couple of aspects to that. First, I think it's important for us to understand that, that there is more to this world than what we can see. There's more going on than meets the eye. There really are forces of evil that are at work. That, and if we're going to understand ourselves and if we're going to understand the world correctly, we have to see that, that there's more at work than just what's on the surface. That the bad things in this world aren't just a result of a lack of education or of um, bad brain chemistry or a lack of discipline or a bad family life or something like that, the problem, certainly those things can be bad. But the problem goes so much deeper than that. There's something deeper at work and really something that operates on an entirely different plane even than those sorts of things. And secondly, I think that seeing the reality of that—if you're a believer—I think it will help you understand your own experience as a Christian. Right, the minute that you became a believer, if you had sort of a conversion story where you—you uh, know—you were not a Christian and then, you know, you have a, a very distinct conversion moment, um, or, or whether you grew up—you know—grew up in the church, uh, at, at some point. Right? That means that you are filled with the Spirit of God. That you are justified. At that moment of your belief, you, you've been justified. You've been declared perfect. You have the righteousness of Jesus. You've been adopted by God. He's growing you and changing you. He's brought you into a community. That all of those things are now wonderfully true of you. But at the same time... It means that you have necessarily been brought into a war. That you're under attack whether you recognize it or not. It means that Satan hates you. And he and his forces are out to, to get you. And I don't know how that lands with you. That might sound sort of corny or old-fashioned. Or, but, but that's what the text is telling us and showing us. His forces are very real and they are after you. 1 Peter uh, 5.8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So I think we could say it this way, that, that we shouldn't be surprised if you're a believer, if you feel like you're taking life on the chin a lot of times. Because that might seem odd. It might seem like it should be the opposite. I'm a Christian, you know, I'm a believer now, and everything should be getting better. But it doesn't seem to be. Right? How does the text describe it? The text describes it as being in the wilderness. Uh, the, the time that when Satan is after God's people between Jesus' first and second coming, which is now, it's described as this time of being in the wilderness. And so again, Old Testament, what was the most vivid wilderness time, right? In the Exodus, God leads his people out of slavery. They're free. They're heading to the promised land. They're heading to to glory, so to speak. But they spend a long time in, in the wilderness, in the desert. And it was a time of great testing where they were very much not at home. They are free, but they're not at home, right? You can imagine what it's like to camp in the desert for... years on end. It's hot. It's not comfortable. There's not as much food and water as you would like. uh, You're exposed. And the Bible is giving you that picture that that's the picture of the normal Christian life. Not the defeated Christian life. Not the disobedient Christian life. The normal Christian life. because there's a war going on, and you and I are not at home. We're living on the front lines of a battle. Right? It may not feel like this. I mean, this is America, after all. We're not near the front lines of anything. But if you're a Christian, you are. You're very much on the front lines of this conflict. And so, look, it might feel like... It might feel like you're, you're a Christian, but as you look around your life, you feel like you're just... You're actually... You see more and more sin. As you, you know, you, you are hoping that you're growing, but you look around and you, and you see sin in all these areas of your life that you didn't even think about before. That's the war. Uh, it, it might look like, um, it might look like feeling temptation. Right now you're aware of whatever it is that you struggle with and you're, and you're fighting it. And yet now temptation is, not, not, not only are you not, um, you haven't completely gotten over it, but now it's popping up in all sorts of new places. It's assaulting you all the time. That's the war. You find yourself trying to love people, right? Try to do the right thing. And yet people resent it for some reason maybe. And, and it's, it's not going well. That's the war. You find yourself working to be faithful in your studies maybe. You really do I, like my calling is to be a student. I'm going to be faithful in that, and I'm working hard, and it's in the grades it, I'm just not getting the good grades that I want. And the people that cheat get better grades, and it it just doesn't seem right. That's the war. But the second thing I want you to see is that the war has been won. And this is probably the highlight of the whole and the point of the, of the text, like the main idea, that this war, look, as much as we need to remind ourselves that we really are in the midst of a war, you need to hear and be encouraged by the fact that the war has been won. There's still battles to be fought. Satan is real. He's bringing attack. But he has ultimately and decisively been defeated. Jesus has really defeated Satan. And so, yes, we're in the wilderness, but I want you to notice two things about the wilderness. First, it's in the wilderness, right, that the people of God are protected and nourished. Did you notice that? Think about Israel when they were in the the wilderness, which, in case you're wondering, that's what we're going to study in the spring. We're going to go through Exodus. Um, Think about Israel in the wilderness. God, God was right in their midst. He came and he camped. Right in the middle of them. He was there protecting them, nourishing them, caring for them. When Jesus was tempted by the devil himself, right? Out where? In the wilderness. What happened? Uh, angels came and ministered to him. So yes, we're going to be in the war and we're going to feel its effects, but ultimately we're protected. And the second aspect I want you to see from the wilderness is that it's for a limited time. It's just for 1,260 days. What does that mean? Well, that's basically what? Three and a half years. Right? we said that numbers in Revelation are symbolic. Seven years uh, would represent this, this completely full time. right? Seven is a number of, uh, sort of wholeness, perfection, completeness. So seven years would be a, a, complete, a, a completely full time. And so here in this vision, you get the picture of God's people being in the wilderness for half of that. And the point, is, the point is that God is in control. That yes, Satan can have his effects, but it does not go beyond God's control. That it's limited. That it goes exactly as, exactly as long as God allows and no further. All right, the third application I want to make, I want you, I want to look at, uh, we'll call it the enemy's tactics. How does Satan wage this war? Because I think as we look at what Satan, how he wages war against God's people, we'll learn a lot about it. Um, And so I want to highlight two things. One of the main ways that Satan wars against God's people is, is by Deception. You see verse 9, it says, Satan is the deceiver of the world. Satan comes to God's people and he, he twists the truth. He doesn't just make up outright lies, but he takes the truth, and in some ways a lot of truth, and he perverts it just a little bit, just a little bit. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen 14 says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan is the master of deception. Uh, stealing this from my friend Brian, but um, he said, you know, I think we tend to think about uh, Satan, you know, you would picture him as sort of the, uh, you know, rolling up on a Harley with, you know, black leather jacket, you know, switchblade, and, you know, death metals playing in the background, and, uh, you know, he sort of wheels up, and, and, you know, it's like, worship me. And it's just this, like, horrible-looking, like, uh, scary figure. And, and that's probably not, like, that's a terrible picture. Because Satan is the master of deception, right? He's very subtle. He's a master theologian. He knows his stuff. He just doesn't like it. He knows all about God. He just doesn't love him. He hates the truth. Think about the original deception of Adam and Eve, what does, he, what does he say? He comes to him and says, Did God really say that you can't eat from any of these trees? Now that's sort of a lot of what God said. Right? A lot of those words. But what did God really say? God said, You can eat of any of the trees except this one. So Satan comes along and says, Did he really say you can't have any of this? And then the next part, right? What does he say? Um... Uh, He takes the truth and he says, uh, no, we we just can't eat of this one tree. Uh, Eve responds, uh, because in the day that we eat it, we'll die. And Satan says, what? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Here's the reason God doesn't want you to eat of that tree, because he knows that if you eat it, then you'll be just like he is. He takes some of the truth, because her eyes are going to be opened. And he twists it. And he begins to get Eve to think, wait a minute. Maybe God doesn't have my best interests at heart. Maybe he's not looking out for me. And so I would ask you, uh, where do you, where do we believe the lie? Where are you tempted? Yeah, are you tempted to think, look, I know I'm not supposed to cheat in class, but look, everybody else is doing it. And if I don't, I'm not going to keep up. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to compete to get into grad school and those sorts of things and get the right job. And the subtle thought there, the subtle deception is, I'm not sure God's really going to take care of me if I'm faithful. What if he won't let me get that job or get into that school? I'm not sure he's looking out for me. Or are you tempted to think, look, I'll deal with my sexuality the way I want to. Because look, you know, whether it's pornography or uh, you know, whatever it might be, um, there, there's no victim here. It's not that wrong. I'm not hurting anybody. There's no real problem. And after all, why would God keep this good thing? Why would he keep it back from me? I'm not sure he has my best interest at heart. He doesn't really care about me. Uh, there are all sorts of other deceptions, ways that we might believe the lie. Uh, we, we might believe the lie about who the real enemy is, Right? Satan wants to get you to think the real enemy is not him and the evil. The real enemy is uh, a person with different theology than you. The real enemy are those Calvinists or those people that aren't Calvinists or those Presbyterians. That's the real enemy. Or those Baptists. Those are the real enemy. Or maybe it's uh, people with um, slightly different, uh, you know, uh, it's the people that homeschool. That's the enemy. No, the real enemy are the people that go to public school or private school or whatever it is, right? I mean, it's funny, but we, right? Those people don't like each other a lot of times, right? They're the enemy because we believe the lie. Maybe it's uh, it's the deception of self-righteousness. It comes along and says, look, of course you're not perfect. Nobody's perfect, but you're a lot better than those people. And we begin to believe the lie. Uh, lastly, uh, we see that the, uh, or the other way, the other tactic of the devil is that he is the accuser. He uses accusation. Verse 10, we see that the Greek, actually the Greek word for devil means accuser. And we see him doing that in the Old Testament in Job and Zechariah 3. Satan loves to attack God's people by accusing them, by bringing accusation. And if you're a believer, look, I know you felt this. You felt the the accusation, you know, uh, you've heard me say this before, but if you're like me, when you walk in, maybe you walk into church or RUF or Bible study, and it's that voice that says, like, are you kidding yourself? You know you're nothing but a fake. Or you know you're nothing but, uh, you know, fill in the blank. You're nothing but a cheater. You're nothing but a whore. You're nothing but a loser. You're nothing but a drunk. You're nothing but a, a backstabbing friend. Whatever it is. Right? Those accusations come. So, how do you combat that? We're going to end with this very quickly. How do, we, how do you battle the deception? We battle the deception with the truth, right? Verse 11 and verse 17. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Verse 17 people of God are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus right we need the truth of God right we need we need Jesus uh, incarnate right you have the word incarnate in Jesus and you have the word written we have the Bible he gives us the truth and so we fight the truth we fight the lies of Satan with the truth of God's word It's the only way that we can recognize the deception. It's what Jesus did in the desert, right? If you go back and look, uh, he responds to Satan every time with Scripture. And so we we have to remind ourselves the truth. The truth of Scripture comes and it reminds us. God really does care for you. This really is God's character. He's not against you. His law, uh, you know, we use this a bunch. It's not a a fence around an amusement park. It's a fence around a, a, a pit of death. And then accusation. How do we deal with that? We've got to finish up quick. What is it that battles the accusations of the devil? And it's the blood of the lamb. When those voices rise up against you, what battles them? We battle them with the blood of the lamb. Right? In one sense, we rob those accusations of their power in one sense by admitting that they're true. By owning them. When that voice rises up and says, but you're, you're faking this. You don't really love God. right?" You can you battle that accusation as a believer by, by admitting, you know what, in one sense, that is true. But because of the blood of the lamb, I am cleansed from that. In the the most real sense, that is not true of me. Because Jesus' blood was spilled in my place. So in one sense, yep, that is true of me. But in, in another very real sense, it is not true of you. Because Jesus took the truth of that accusation and he put it on himself. And he took the full measure of God's wrath for it in your place. So that accusation now, you know, as you own it, it, it has no teeth because of the blood of the lamb. You can actually admit it, right? It's like the wildfire. Uh, you, you've probably heard this illustration, but uh, if, a, if, a, if a wildfire is bearing down on, on someone's house or property, sometimes what, what they, they will do is... Basically, burn ahead of the fire, burn a big circle uh, around their house. Now, why would you do that? Because as the fire approaches, when it gets there, there's nothing left to burn. And so it, it goes out. It can't go any further. And that, that's, a, that's just this little picture, right, of what Jesus has done for you. If he's taken the full weight of that accusation away, because he took the full wrath of God for it, then there's nothing left to burn. Right? As as the fire of Satan's accusation comes, there's no material there left to burn because it's already been taken out on Jesus. And it robs the devil of his accusing power. Let me end with this last picture, this last sort of illustration from the Bible, Zechariah 3, because it's beautiful. And look, look, I don't know if you are familiar with this story. I know it's been a long time since I'd heard it. Zechariah 3, of all places. Uh, Zechariah, the, the prophet, he gets this vision of Joshua, the high priest. And he's standing before God's throne, the high priest is. And he is, he's wearing just, says, filthy garments. not exactly sure what that means, but he's standing before God, and he, he's just disgusting. And Satan is there accusing him. Verses 3-4 through four says this, Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Right, what a beautiful picture. Standing there in your filth. Before God. And the angel right says, And Satan's accusing him. Look how disgusting you are. And God says, essentially, no. Take that filth off of him and give him beautiful clothes. Right? And it's a picture of what Jesus is going to do. What now for us Jesus has done. That he's he has worn our filth so that we can wear his righteousness. And the accusations fall fall to the ground. And that's the good news the war's been won. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have authored such an amazing salvation. Jesus, that you have come and you have won the war. Would you cause us to battle well? Would you nourish us? Would you take care of us? And we ask it in your name. Amen.